On the Other Side was a production of the Open Stories Foundation between July 19th and October 25th of 2018. It has since been taken offline by Open Stories, but you can now find an archive of all 15 episodes on chrisway.com O-T-O-S or on whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. On the Other Side was a podcast project dedicated to discussing religious, post-religious, and religion-adjacent issues from a distinctly millennial perspective. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of On the Other Side. Uh, I am your host for today, Chris Way, and today I have a special guest, Russell Hatch. He is an old friend of mine. We met, I think, probably, what, 2012, Russ? Does that sound right? Yeah, around there. Maybe 2011, maybe even earlier. Um, we worked together at a place called Provo Beach Resort in Provo, Utah, <laughs> where we uh, we entertained patrons who wanted to go to the beach and also be in Provo, Utah, for some reason. Uh, very strange place, very lovely. Um, and yeah, since then, we've, uh, we've known each other for a while. We've talked about a lot of things, including philosophy and religion. Uh, Russell has never been Mormon, didn't grow up Mormon, but did grow up in Provo. So very familiar with kind of Mormon and post-Mormon circles. Um, and he's studying uh, philosophy right now, doing uh, focusing on environmental studies and, and, and uh, things like that. So I wanted to talk to Russell today about um, kind of his philosophical outlook and the way that he engages with the world and specifically his insight on kind of faith transition and things like that, issues surrounding faith in general uh, from an outside looking in perspective. So, um, Russ, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anything you want to add to your bio on uh, what makes you you? Anything you want the readers to know up front or the listeners rather? No, I mean, you pretty much covered some of the basics. I mean, yeah, I've grown up in the Orem Provo area my whole life and not been a member. So that's a pretty big deal when you're not part of the main culture. And so it does provide a little bit of a different experience or perspective. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another important thing everyone should know about you is that you love birds, right? I do. Yeah. Birds are great. So, uh, let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk about, um, let's start with your childhood. Maybe like what, what was it like growing up here? You grew up in Provo, right? Or in Orem? I grew up in Orem. Okay. Uh, but I mean, they're right next to each other, so it's not much difference, but yeah, childhood was interesting. I mean, I grew up in a family that never really discussed Mormonism or discussed religion. And so I didn't have any ideas to what it was or what, you know, that religion even existed. So did, uh, so you you had friends, I'm sure, at school that were Mormon and, and you would hear things. Did you ever come home to your parents with questions about stuff? Or So, yeah, um, since we never talked about it at home... I guess the first memory that I have where religion started to become a topic in, let's say, elementary school, yeah. I think it was around third or fourth grade. And I was actually asked if I was a Republican or a Democrat. Okay. And this was around the uh, Bush and Gore election. And I knew that my parents were more on the Democratic side. And somehow that meant that I wasn't Mormon. Uh, and so right after I was asked whether or not I was a Democrat or a Republican, and I didn't really know what to say, the next one was, well, asking me about church. And I was like, well, what is, what is church? I'm the oldest child in the family, so I'm the first one that gets to experience these types of things and then relay them to my siblings. And yeah. so 
it was kind of astonishing to see the reactions on the other kids' faces when I didn't know what either of these things really were. <laughs> and so I don't remember coming home and asking my parents about it. I do remember just feeling really embarrassed not knowing what these things were. Yeah. What uh, Did you get any like answers from these kids or were you too embarrassed to ask or like what? What kind of conversations ensued from that at that age? Yeah, so there was a point in time where they were talking about Gordon B. Hinckley, and I didn't know who that was. (laughs) I was too young. And since we don't talk about religion in my family, not because it's something that we're not supposed to talk about, it's just we were more focused on going on hikes on Sundays and, you know, learning about more, you know, the environment, studying insects or rocks or things like that. And so when I didn't know who Gordon B. Hinckley was, everyone thought I was joking. Everyone thought that I was just messing around or something, and I totally wasn't. And so there's there's this area where people didn't know that I was joking or not joking, and uh, they just had to kind of go with it. But other people, when they'd actually find out that I wasn't Mormon, you know, when people in the ward would start to notice that I wasn't attending anything, and I didn't even know that there was something to attend. Yeah, you uh, didn't know that there was <laughs> such a thing as a ward. Exactly. So, I mean... Uh, I'm in this block and there's people that live there and I guess they all go to this thing that I don't know about. And now there's a community that's being created around me that I'm not a part of. Uh, and so when you go to school, naturally these people who are going to you know church every Sunday and going to these activities will have more experience with each other and have more of a relationship. And so I didn't build that with any of them. And when we're all going to school, you know, walking to school a few blocks away, Suddenly, I was kind of an outcast just naturally. Yeah. Uh, and, and that creates a little bit of a divide, and you start to see that early, you know, even in elementary school. Wow. How, uh, how long was it until people started trying to convert you? Because that, I mean, I know in high school, as growing up Mormon, I was often encouraged to, you know, like get your friends to come to these things and get your friends to take the lessons or to, um, you know, talk to your friends about religious or, or spiritual topics, you know, and encourage them to have these experiences. Did you have a lot of outreach like that in your life? So elementary school, no. I don't think that, you know, kids are generally given the tools to try and convert people at that yeah, age. Yeah. But you definitely start to see that change throughout junior high and high school. Okay. Uh, I would have people that would approach me, whether it was just people in the ward now because I was a little bit older, um, whether or not they tried to like undermine my parents or invite me to church. I remember going to like a junior jazz game, which is, you know, our junior basketball type of thing. And I was given, there was an announcement made over like a speakerphone and, and they were asking me to come join them at church. And it was really odd because at that time I didn't like the intercom. So it's just like one of those, uh, megaphones and, uh, they were like, "Hey, we invite you to come to church with us next Sunday." And I was, I was paralyzed. Like, <laughs> "Hey, like, I don't, I don't really want anybody to know that I'm that I don't go to church." Yeah. Like, sometimes I'd want it to be something hidden, and there'd be a little bit of a reset button. It would feel like every summer, I'd come back to school the next year and hope that maybe people had forgotten or the new people that year, since they didn't know me, that was my chance to maybe make friends or something. Yeah. But eventually, people find out I don't have any of the information when it comes to scripture when it comes to any of the gospel. So, I mean, it's pretty hard to hide at some point. So you would miss like little references to the texts or things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I mean, I wouldn't go to any of like the seminary 
classes or anything like that. And so there's also events that would happen. Like I was part of a jazz band and we would have to wear more, uh, you know, church clothing. And I didn't have any of that. And so there's a little bit of, hey, that person's wearing <laughs> goofier clothes when they should be wearing, you know, something more buttoned down. And so there's there's things that people would pick up on. And you'd especially be surprised that kids can pick up on those things pretty easily. Yeah. It's interesting how a lot of what you're describing isn't really ideology or doctrine. It's just these like subtle kind of cultural things of like, oh, this this kid doesn't have a tie. So like he stands out because yeah. the Mormon, like, you know, the culture, the the way the culture perpetuates itself has this kind of image that you didn't conform to and you didn't even know that you were supposed to or that you were expected to. So you, you stuck out. Exactly. So, I mean, my parents know of these customs and traditions within the church. I mean, my, my dad was Mormon. He went on a mission to the Navajo reservation and left afterward. My mom was, she was baptized, but she ended up leaving as well. They don't seem to have a lot of, I mean, they have a lot of opinions on it, but it's not something that is constantly bashed on in the household. I think that more comes from just the angst that my siblings and I have felt after going through you know, like the educational system yeah, uh, and not being a part of it and feeling, you know, that type of, uh, I mean, it's a type of discrimination or prejudice against us as non-members. Yeah. What, how old were you when you first started having substantive conversations with your parents about, you know, their experiences or their, you know, their upbringing or, or their decisions to leave the church? I'd probably say more around high school. Okay. That's probably when I was given more tools to engage in something more dialectical. Yeah. Uh, when, you know, when I'm wanting to actually go through like, Hey, what am I? Like, what is, what do we believe in as a family or do we, or why don't we? Um, and so, you know, I did have some of those questions and, and we talked about it, but we'd end up just talking more about philosophy as a whole rather than a specific religion. Okay. What were some of those questions like, or what were some of those conversations like? So I remember asking my dad, like, why did you leave? Or why, like, why aren't you a part of it anymore? And they're, they're simple. They're fun to engage in. And one of my favorites, one, one of my favorites is, uh, you know, if you have eternity, then what's the rush? Yeah. <laughs> and of course, there's a lot of different answers that people can come up with, but it's a pretty simple idea is to, well, you're given this maybe 70-year lifespan if you're lucky. Yeah. And if you do something or you don't, with good or, or bad knowledge, you're going to be held accountable for eternity. And, you know, even if there's some sort of limbo stage between, you know, an earthly life and maybe a celestial one, maybe you still have some time to, to fix your errors there when you have more information. So what, what's the big rush here? Yeah. So you, so when you say what's the rush, you mean why, why hastily jump to some kind of conclusion? Is that what you mean? Or, or to some lifestyle or? Yeah. Well, I mean, why, why do we need to engage in something like this when, and, and why is there such a time constraint? Why do we, I mean, some people are lucky to make it to their forties or fifties or when you're looking at it from any sort of angle, yeah. uh, why does it need to be done right now? And and it's not necessarily an answerable question. Sure. Um, another one that he would bring up is, you know, when he's on his mission, he would go around to families that already appeared to be happy, you know, especially when they're coming from a, a Navajo 
tradition and culture and and walk up to their door and tell them, hey, you're not necessarily living your life the way that you should be. Or I have a way that can actually bring true happiness. Yeah. Especially as someone who's so young as a, as a missionary, going and talking to these people, uh, especially with the background that, that they have in the United States, and telling them, hey, this is the way that you should actually live. And that doesn't necessarily sit too well. Yeah, it feels it feels kind of condescending, right? Like you're assuming that your brand of happiness is more genuine or more legitimate than what other people are experiencing, what other people know, or what they have, what their cultures have kind of prepared them with to face the world. You're assuming that that's inadequate, that you have something better. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're undermining their sense of happiness because you've been indoctrinated with uh, with a different one. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, going past like childhood and adolescence, um, was like, what was it like in Provo? The older you got, and the more you kind of emerged into young adulthood, um, to look at the Mormon community, the more you um, kind of established yourself and your values and your worldview and your approach to philosophy. What did Mormonism look like? What did post-Mormonism look like? What were some of those conversations you had either with your family or with your friends? And what, what did it feel like from this outside perspective that you have? Yeah. So as I got older, I was able to better determine or ask questions myself and try and find some answers. And obviously there's a touchy one around here. Um, you know, why, why, why is coffee so bad for you? <laughs> yeah. Um, and as they tell me that I shouldn't be having it, they're chugging down a monster or any other type of energy drink. And I just wonder, you know, hey, what's what's so bad about coffee? Can you give me a definitive answer? And a lot of the, the resources that they give me are either just from their family or, you know, it's based off of a lot of interpretation. And it can be very hypocritical at times. Yeah. Um, especially when it comes to, you know, following some of those words of wisdom where you're not supposed to have coffee or hot drinks or tea or alcohol or things like that. Um, they totally bypass, you know, time, you know, eating meat when it's not a time of winter or famine right, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, because the and text of that actual in- commandment has all these other details that, that Mormon culture generally doesn't really acknowledge, yeah. Yeah, and one of my favorite things to ask missionaries when they'd approach me, especially in high school, was, well, how come you guys are so (laughs) judgmental about coffee, but then every single event that you guys go to has hordes of meat on every plate, and that doesn't seem to bother anybody, especially when it's unnecessary right now. I mean, if it was a lot more difficult, you know, historically, which it is, um, then that makes more sense. But right now we're at a time and place where refrigeration is everywhere. We don't need, we have alternatives for everything when it comes to that. So it's something that nobody really gives a good answer to. And so when I would see these types of inconsistencies in high school, I had to try and figure out what type of ethical or moral paradigm I would find for myself because a lot of other students would wonder, well, hey, if he's not LDS, then where do his morals come from? He obviously doesn't have any code of morals because he doesn't follow the Bible or the Book of Mormon. And so it's almost a challenge to me to try and construct my own system because I was constantly being told that I didn't have one or couldn't have one. What was that? uh, 
what was that system like for you? What, like, what kind of system did you, did you construct when you were in high school? I mean, there's no name to it. Obviously, it's going to be based off of my own bias, my own opinions. And they've changed drastically over the course of, I don't know, the last 15 years. Sure. And so it's more of based off of experience and learning about other people and their experiences and putting myself in their position. I mean, it's true empathy or true sympathy to try and say, hey, here's somebody else's position uh, and seeing you know, what it's like to be them and and why they do the things that they do. Yeah. And so when I wasn't familiar with different points of view, I obviously had my own limited one. And when I encountered something different, I'd have to look into it and also somewhat trust what they're saying. Yeah. Um, maybe it's something that I didn't agree with to begin with, but after you start to actually listen to somebody and you start to value, and you should do it to begin with, but you can value their experience. And I, I think that that builds relationships. Whereas before nobody listened to me and there was no real relationship there. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like your method for kind of constructing your worldview or your system of ethics or values was, was kind of an inquisitive one. You were, you were, you know, is an inquiry into the world where you're trying to learn and listen. Um, and you, you felt like, it sounds like you're saying you felt like you were not afforded that same benefit of the doubt. People were not learning from you with the same vigor that you hoped to learn from them. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. I mean, I wanted to give other people what I didn't get. Yeah. What, uh, what were those relationships like then, you know, with um, friends or, or potential dating prospects, you know, in your you know late teens, early adulthood, what, how did that kind of disconnect or that um, difference in your approach feed into the relationships that you had with people yeah dating's an interesting one <laughs> when uh everybody's expecting you know the future missionary or the returning missionary yeah. and you're not going to be one and so you immediately become incompatible at first i didn't want religion to be something that separated me or created that type of divide but eventually i had to just realize that that's something that exists if somebody has a qualifier and you don't meet it, then you're not going to necessarily have that type of option. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it's disheartening when people see you as a non-member and that means that uh, you're not worthy enough to date. And I mean, I'm not expecting to go on any dates anyway, but, or I'm not, it's not something that I'm owed, but uh you feel like you have to sort of prove yourself and say, Hey, no, like I'm, I can also be a decent human being yeah. and not necessarily believe in those same types of things. But I also understand that qualifiers exist, whether they're, you know, right or wrong. I mean, I have some of my own, I mean, <laughs> so sure. I, I mean, I guess it's a good time to bring up as a plant-based or vegan adult. That's something that I guess I would prefer. Um, but you know, it's something that that people would definitely judge on, especially during high school. You're automatically out of the uh, you're, you're out not, of the you're not any sort of <laughs> exactly, and that's for like ninety nine percent of the people because uh, it's it's at the age where people aren't necessarily questioning what they believe. It's just that's the way that it is. That's the way that their family works. And that's the way that their future family is going to yeah. work. And so, I mean, I already know people that I've dated where 
even, you know, them as a child, they're already being, I'm going to use the word programmed, uh, to determine what type of like future husband it is that they want. And for almost every category, I do not fit in. <laughs> and so, and that's, I mean, that's okay. Uh, I don't have to fit that category, but since I live here, that makes it pretty Yeah, rough. Yeah. Cause demographically, I mean, I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with this, but, uh, some who might not know, um, Profile Utah is very homogenous. Like uh, demographically, it's it's mostly um, the same culture, the same religion, the same race. Even it's just a very white Mormon town. Uh, and and or I'm sorry, you grew up in Orem, um, but Orem Provo pretty interchangeable. But yeah, demographically, you're looking yeah. at a population that is um, you're going to have slim pickings as far as like options or people that are even open to a first or second date with you. That sounds. That sounds difficult. I, I think like Mormons in general complain about Provo dating, at least a lot of the Mormons that I've met, like, you know, and so like people, people have a hard time dating in, in an area like that anyway, even when they are in the church. And I think part of the difficulty is that there's this constant judgment of like, what kind of Mormon are you? Or at least in my experience, it's yeah. been like, yeah, are you Mormon enough? Or are you post-Mormon enough? Or are you nuanced Mormon? Or are you conservative Mormon? Are you following enough rules or breaking enough rules? Like, no matter who you date, they're going to have some kind of idea of, like, the way in which it's appropriate for you to engage with Mormon Mormonism and whether you are inside those boundaries. And it sounds like for you, the difficulty was that you were disqualified from even that question because <laughs> like all the people with their different nuanced different uh, iterations or different variations on on their requirements of that you didn't qualify for to date any of them so it sounds like you yeah that's hard i mean date, dating is going to be part of a discovery and that's going to be you know learning more about each other and when you're immediately disqualified you don't get to learn yeah no one gets <laughs> to learn about you yeah yeah and i mean there's there's a lot of entitlement I think that you see here when it comes to Ormond Provo dating where people feel like they're owed something, yeah. uh, and so I generally have felt the opposite. I, I feel like I I'm not owed any sort of date or any anything like that. And that's probably because I'm not used to being able to do any of that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so so eventually, like how. Um... How do you meet people? How do you meet friends? Um, did you just eventually have to make a rule of like, I'm going to only date um, people who are like non-Mormon or ex-Mormon or, you know, as far as like meeting, even just non-dating, even just friends, like how do you, um, how do you exist socially in Provo? So there's, there's almost no community for people who aren't LDS. Um, of course, that's changing now. Uh, but especially when I was in high school or just after having graduated, I graduated in 2008, so 10 years yeah. ago, uh, the the secular or post-Mormon or atheist community, it is growing, and you can see that on social media, but that wasn't a thing 10 years ago. Uh, so the way that you'd interact, and of course this is just my experience, but I really didn't. I mainly just relied on, and I'm happy to have relied on, it's family time. I mean, my brothers were my best friends at yeah. the time. And that's that's generally the way that it went. Everything that I would do was usually revolved around them. And I'm I'm fine with that. It's made our relationships really strong, I feel like. Um, at the same time, I really feel for people who have had any sort of faith crisis and have had to lose 
a community that they've been so dependent on. I see that in a lot of yeah. people. I see them when they're leaving a church or their or their family to a degree, uh, they're missing a lot of relationships or a lot of you know previous comfort that they had. I mean, for myself, I find out that there's a thing called Fireside or Institute that people attend, and I just mark that off as another thing that I never (laughs) participated in. But now people, when they're a part of it and they're leaving, that's something that they looked forward to or something that they did participate in that (laughs) they have to find time for something else instead. Yeah, um, I want to talk about faith crisis and faith transitions for a bit, too, because, like... um You've you've witnessed a lot of those firsthand. It, it seems like I mean, even just knowing me, like you and I have been friends for years, and that means that when we first met, I was uh, fairly devout, you know, fairly um, conservative Mormon, and even just you know, Time Hop, this this kind of app on your phone that aggregates memories from Facebook and Twitter and other apps, um, was reminding me the other day that just exactly three years ago, I was. Um, I was going to the temple again after a period of like not going for a while. And I was kind of trying to revitalize my faith and having this moment of, uh, of trying to kind of dive back in, you know, head first into this religion that I was feeling angsty about. And now, you know, I'm in a completely different place. I'm, uh, not just geographically, I'm like so far away from Utah now, but, um, spiritually and, and philosophically, I feel, like that's a different person when I look back on those memories and you lived with me through most of that transition and and you've lived with other transitioning Mormons, you've dated transitioning Mormons or or ex Mormons, and you've, you've seen a lot of this stuff firsthand. What are some insights you've gained or what are some, I don't know, some reflections you have um, that a lot of our listeners might not have thought of, you know, that you might see from the outside looking in. Well, first, I see a lot of pain when it comes to people who are transitioning and having a really difficult time expressing that to their family, Uh, especially the people that I've dated. They transition not because of me, but they transition because of of what they think and what they've researched. And immediately when their family finds out that they're dating a non-member, they think that it's because Mm -hmm. of me. Um, And so there's a lot going on when it comes to uh, validating people's transition and why they're doing it. Uh, they like to try and find a way or create some sort of scapegoat to justify why their daughter, or why you know someone is not or no longer a part of a part of the church. As far as you, yeah, I mean, going to Thai Village every so often and asking you, Chris, where are you at now, and then getting a completely different answer. <laughs> yeah, every couple of months, it was uh, slightly more agnostic, or yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you would slowly become a Mormon with 10 more asterisks as to why you need to qualify yourself as a Mormon, but here's why you kind of aren't. Um, And, I mean, I don't know where you are at now. I don't know if you want to say really quickly. Uh, Sure, yeah. I mean, um, I guess I would call myself like a non-practicing Mormon, um, and I still would use a lot of the asterisks that I've been using for years, like, oh, universalist, humanist Mormon, or, you know, like progressive Mormon and things like that. But, um, but I like to throw in the word non-practicing, which a lot of, a lot of Mormons and post-Mormons don't use that word. They use, you know, inactive or X. And uh, to me, I like, I like the middle ground in between those where it's like, no, I'm not inactive. I'm like actively not 
doing the stuff and not believing the stuff. It's not, it's not just that I'm taking a break. It's not just that I'm like a Mormon who forgot to go to church every week for several months. Like that's what inactive feels like to me. So I say non-practicing instead because I'm practicing a life. I'm, I'm engaged in a life that is pretty non-Mormon in a lot of ways. Um, and so I'm, but, but I still have that word at the end of all my asterisks, you know, I'm a non-practicing universalist, progressive, agnostic Mormon. And, and at the end of that is still the word Mormon, because I think it's still part of my, I don't know, my heritage, my cultural identity, the, you know, the hermeneutics or the epistemology with which I look at the world is still very strongly shaped by Mormonism, even if I don't agree with most or any of the, uh, of the truth claims anymore, or, um, participate in any of the behavioral rules anymore. It's still, it's still a part of me. So that's, that's the short version, I guess, of where I am now. And it's different. Like, like you said, we, we went to Thai village every few weeks, every couple of months. And and every time I had a slightly different answer to that question of where are you with the church? And yeah, that's, that's where I'm at now, I think. Yeah. And that, I think that's a perfect way to explain or describe so much of the turmoil that people go through when they start to leave something like this, when it's so culturally ingrained in who you identify as and you come to find things that you're not okay with and you have to decide whether or not you want to stay on the boat and change it or if you want to get out of the boat and maybe try and change it from the outside. And I I think that losing relationships through losing community, whether it's friends, family, neighbors, you know, et cetera. And then trying to decide for yourself, do I stay inside and try and change it? Or do I, do I find more success in leaving it, trying to identify with something new and maybe that'll change it for the better either way. But if it doesn't, I'm no longer a part of it. And that's something that I see a lot of people struggle with is they have this list of problems And, you know, how many, uh, how many things need to be brought up for someone to break and is breaking a good or a bad thing. That's obviously up to their, or, you know, that's circumstantial, but I don't know. I mean, the November policy, that was a big one for you. It was a huge one. And how many people, how many people have left and how many people have stayed and how many people are being, you know, impacted for leaving or how many people are still suffering with remaining and having to deal with these issues that people are starting to really bring to light. Yeah. And so I, I think that's a basic philosophical thing is, can you really change your religious identity once you've been in it for 20 plus years? And obviously it's different for everybody, but that's something that I see everybody going through, whether it's when they're 18 or when it's, you know, when they're 20, when they come back from their mission, whether it's after, you know, a separation in a relationship or it's something when they're 30 or older. Uh, I just see a lot of pain when it comes to losing community and having to decide whether or not leaving is yeah. for the best. Yeah. Um, let's spend let's spend the next kind of half of this episode talking about that struggle and, and the thing you just identified. Like, I think a lot of our listeners are, are um, going to have trouble as they transition away from Mormonism, figuring out what is my identity then, right? Because like you said, it's difficult to negotiate to what extent Mormon identity is still part of you. And part of that difficulty is 
okay, well, if I'm not Mormon, then what the hell am I? And what do I believe? And how do I form my, you know, a new paradigm, especially, you know, if I'm much older than, than you were in high school, if I'm in my twenties, if I'm in my thirties, if I'm in my forties, you know, um, then like what, uh, what building blocks do I have at my disposal with which I can, I can, um, learn to construct a new, uh, a new value system. So let's talk about value systems maybe a little, cause I know you have a lot of like strong ethical kind of ideas about the world and like, um, ideas about ethics and ideas about environmentalism, um, and, you know, theism and atheism, maybe let's start, let's start there. Maybe like what, what are some of the issues we talked a little bit before recording about how, um, you see a lot of problems in the the dogma of like kind of new atheism, these Sam Harris type people and um, how that mirrors or reflects kind of traditional Christianity. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I, uh, so I would say that I used to be a pretty big fan of what you'd call the four horsemen. So that's going to be Daniel Dennett Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris and right. Richard Dawkins. I do find them entertaining and I do, you know, I'll find them to say things that I'll agree with, but at the same time, they take it to this level that I think can be fairly inconsiderate. Not saying that I'm not ever that myself, um, but that's not necessarily their expertise or I don't see them necessarily providing anything beneficial once you declare that you're no longer uh a theologian yeah. or you're no longer spiritual. Yeah, and for, for our listeners who don't um, know, the four horsemen are these, you know, four very prominent intellectual atheists uh, who are, you know, they're quite famous for just being vocally and, and unapologetically anti-religious. You know, they're not just atheists, they're anti-theists, right? And, and so there's a sense in which the reason why I want to bring this up is, is there's a sense in which it's tempting after leaving a religion to kind of flock to this new angry, um, kind of uh, these these heroes that you want to look to and say like, well, the other guy was wrong, the prophet was wrong, the apostle was wrong, but these guys are right, the horsemen are right. And and as you were saying before I interrupted you, I apologize. Was that you know that's a little dangerous too, right? That can be a little. They can approach things in a way that's not necessarily always healthy, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, for myself, that's where I began because when I was just looking into things because of their popularity, you're going, you're, you're bound to find them. The difference is, is that I wasn't coming from a place of losing yeah. a community and trying to find something else to grapple onto. And I didn't just look at them as my next like religious yeah. idol or non-religious idol. Uh, I see a lot of people who, when they're leaving, they will grasp at, something else and whether or not, and I, and I always have this question because I know people, you know, friends of mine that leave Mormonism and then they gravitate toward another, you know, religion, another form of Christianity. And I just wonder mm -hmm. why it obviously depends on why people are leaving. They'll leave the church because of something about Joseph Smith or they'll leave something about the, the November policy and they'll find a, you know, another Christian church that accepts LGBTQ and yeah. and so on. And then you'll find the people who are leaving religion as a whole. And where do they go to? It's usually going to be the internet. And that's full of the four horsemen. And I think that the robust philosophical arguments for uh, atheism are usually buried a little bit. Uh, and then you'll see that there's groups like on Facebook that are 
you know, that are titled like the Utah Atheists. And while I do understand their their desire to belong to a community, uh, I find myself questioning what the identity is and what the point of being in a group about not being in a group really is for. And so when I see the Four Horsemen and I see people transitioning into like a hard new type of atheism, I don't see them replacing their lost religion or their lost faith with something important or something Mm -hmm. meaningful. Uh, It usually seems to revolve around a really hard science. And it seems like it, it gets to the point where, you know, hard science and facts and just objective reality is what matters. And they still hold on to a lot of old Christian or like Mormon belief systems that, that are hard to acknowledge or unpack. But at the same time, they don't, it almost seems like they've, they don't need to continue anymore. Like they've, they've found, they've, they've found nothingness and it's, and they're there to either bash on Mormonism or find some sort of solace in not being something. I I, I don't, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson talks a little bit about it when people ask his views on religion and he just says, well, how many people are, or identify as a non-baseball player? Like how many Facebook groups exist to say, you know, I'm, I'm not a bird watcher (laughs) and we can all identify and find solidarity in the fact that none of us bird watch and none of us find joy in that. And we've left, we've left the club of bird watching and so here we all are, and we can talk about anything in the world, and we can also bash on the people mm. who birdwatch. And for me, it just didn't seem like a place for myself as somebody who has never believed in any sort of religious figure to find myself, hey, this is the Utah Atheist page, but it's just full of people who are hurting from leaving, people who don't have a community to go to. And it just seems to be filled with like objectivity that doesn't leave room for like emotions outside mm, of the yeah. <laughs> And rightfully so. I'm not here to tell any of these people that they can't be hurt or be upset. But a lot of what I find is people who like to just stay there. They found their community. And it's almost like a truncated version of, of religion. Yeah. You're saying that that anger while it may be appropriate in the moment, especially since, you know, to use the analogy of, you know, the non bird watchers, like if bird watching was this kind of hegemon in society, if it was this like force that was very dominant and very um, ideologically like ran the world politically, culturally, especially in a place like Utah, then, then it would make sense to be angry once you left that or, or once you decided that like bird watching was not a healthy thing for you or for the people you loved. But you're saying that anger is not, it doesn't look like a very healthy place to stay or to sit in for too long because it doesn't produce anything new. It's just this reactive thing, right? Yeah. I mean, I would say if we were in an environmental crisis right now and we had more of an identity or relationship with the environment that we're in, then it wouldn't be so problematic. But there's a lot of things that we actually need to be doing right now or things that we've distanced ourselves from that I think that we could, instead of replacing, you know, being an ex, rather than identifying as an ex Mormon, we can identify as something more ecological based or something that gives a little bit more purpose rather than being a non 
thing <laughs> rather than being instead of anti loved. something let's let's be pro and so, something and you're saying the environment is something that needs our attention right now that's something that i've been really interested in my entire life and so that is something that i have found to be more of a resting place for myself when it comes to community or when it comes to purpose and so when i see the form of traditional christianity where they believe that the earth is something temporal and they're going to be going to a better place. And after you die, you are buried and you're within your burial. You're hyper separated from the earth. And the earth is kind of cast off. It's kind of, it's yeah. the fallen place. And, and I think that when you view it that way, that even though that's our procedure for death, and that is where in the celestial kingdom or telestial or whatever it is that you, believe in or where you think you're going that's the objective and that's the goal and that doesn't really give much credit or much uh i would say care to where we are right now and so i see that as a problem if you are going to practice that and that's the way that you're going to die that's also going to affect the way that you live and we live at a time where we have so many materials and (laughs) there's so so much waste going on that we don't look at where these things come from. We don't look at the root of where people are having to manufacture these things. And just our own identity with the environment just seems like it's, it's secondary. It doesn't really matter to us as much. But when you look at the traditional Christian view and you see the problems with that, I don't see how new atheism or modern atheism fix it. It's more of a void of nothingness. When you die, it doesn't matter. It's it's just it's it's empty. And maybe there is nothing after we die, but our physical bodies are still here, and the things or the actions that took place still have an impact on the the people yeah. who live after so you, us. And I, I, don't, I was going to say go just to, to kind of reflect back to make sure I'm understanding. It sounds like you're saying both traditional religion and this new atheism are failing to reconcile with or grapple with the responsibility we have to just uh, be yeah, responsible with, with the way that we are interacting with the environment around us and the way that we as organisms feed into the environment and are fed by the environment. And, you know, when we die, our, our bodies become nutrients and those nutrients become something else. And this whole cycle is either ignored because there's going to be an afterlife and it's going to like put together all the broken stuff or it's ignored because uh, according to quote unquote new atheism, it's, it's all uh, pointless and you're just going to disappear and it's all about you. Right. Is that what you're saying? Basically that there's on, in both of these camps, there's this failure to, um, to reconcile with, with what do we do ethically with the world around us? Exactly. That's a good way to put it. I mean, there's there's too many people. I was having the same type of conversation uh, while I was being tattooed, and the, the the artist was saying, yeah, like, after I die, you can just throw my body out onto the street. And, and it was the attitude, I mean, I don't want to say it's apathetic, but to a degree, I would say, well, it does matter because someone's going to yeah. run into that. Or, or there are organisms that could really benefit from those nutrients that your body will provide. Just as everything that you've eaten and everything that you've used have have uh, essentially died so you could live. 
Yeah, you uh, leave your body on the street, it means that you know, some animal's going to hobble out there and try to try to get it if it, if you know it's injured and it can't hunt anymore or something and then that animal will get hit by a car and then you're perpetuating suffering instead of alleviating it right yeah i mean like regardless of what's going to eventually consume your body um good for them but it's more of our attitude of while we live mm-hmm. that i find to be the problem uh i mean when we die we're going to be we're going to eventually decay whether you like it or not. And we can take as many preventative measures, you know, through embalming or, you know, different types of caskets to delay that. And eventually the earth is going to, you know, it's going to balance itself out with or without humans or, you know, in a destructive way. And it's sort of a valueless type of idea, but I would say the way that we decide to live is going to, it's going to create an impact on, or rather, let me rephrase it. The way that we perceive our own death is going to impact the way that we live. And I would say that if we, if we have, or we perceive our death to be a way of leaving to a better place and leaving a place that, that we don't even want to be in necessarily, or it's just a stepping stone, then we don't necessarily have to care about the plastic bottle that we threw out or we don't have to necessarily care about what it is that we're eating mm. or consuming, or we don't necessarily have to care about what's being impacted on the other side of the world or the people that are being impacted by the externalities that exist by our consumption. And I'm calling the United States out specifically, of course, this happens everywhere. But if we see that the way that we die is to give back to the very least, I would say that maybe we could live by giving a little yeah. bit more too. Yeah, I like this idea that our, you know, theological or post-theological or atheological views on death have a profound impact on on our views on life, right? Like it sounds like you're saying whatever philosophy you internalize about what death means is going to have an effect on how much you care about what you're doing right now and the here and now and the th- the ripple effects that you yeah. have and the impact over now. Um may be affected profoundly by by what you're what you internalize about death regardless of whether you're right or wrong right yeah i mean you can look at it from the theological point of view and say all my great 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 grandkids will eventually make it up to the you know up to heaven and it'll be fine as some people think that that type of like second coming or or whatever they believe is going to happen in their lifetime or maybe a hundred years later and everything's going to be taken care of. There's a sense of complacency there, right? Like if if the assumption is everything will be taken care of, then yeah, that's kind of a shrug, emotionally speaking, right? Yeah, and of course this doesn't have to apply to everybody. You can be a total environmentalist and still be religious. Uh, There's going to be exceptions (laughs) in all cases. But And then on the atheist side, it's, well, if my future kids don't ever exist or if they die prematurely, like there's not really any mm. point to it anyway. And I would say that we need to we need to get away from the human exceptionalist or like anthropocentric point of view where everything that matters is what matters for people or for human beings. And that's that's what I'm really interested in looking into as I continue with philosophy is how can we actually find ourselves in a closer relationship with other animals and the plants that provide and sustain us, uh, as well as the animate earth 
and looking at things as more like some people, I think it's uh Derrida that will even say Jacques Derrida. Um, we can refer to other animals as like duck people or as cougar people. And when you start to look at them that way, rather than as objects or tools yeah. for our own use, you, you start to look at things in a, in a wider perspective where you're not just looking at what's good for yeah, people. Yeah. I like that. It's a rejection of this, kind of entitlement or, or dominion focused narrative that you see both in religion and in atheism of this, the sense of, you know, instead of mm-hmm. focusing on what benefits us as humans, let's just talk about the system as a whole and all of the parts of the system, including humans, but also including these other the equally important parts, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you see on the, I mean, on the reverse, you see the atheist side where they're really into science and science is great. And technology is awesome. It gives us a lot of comforts at the expense of yeah. other people. Um, but w- there's a point where maybe a technology or maybe science uh, isn't necessarily the best option in some cases. We can see that with weapons. We can see that with the amount of energy it takes to run certain things. Or is it more important to send a, a car into space or to feed people? Yeah. Um, you said in the notes that we were talking, we were kind of organizing some thoughts earlier. You mentioned, uh, animism. Can you tell us a little bit more about what animism means? So I'm not a good person to okay. talk to you for this, but the reason why I bring it up is because it's something that I really am getting into and that I love. Um, and the reason why I think it's hard to talk about is because I don't think that a lot of Western language captures what animism is. You see a lot of it in a lot of indigenous cultures. And it's the basic idea, if I were <laughs> to feel comfortable saying what it is, I would actually encourage anybody to go out there and look it up for themselves. But the basic idea is that everything's alive, whether it's rocks or waterfalls or, you know, of course, other animals and plants, but it's just that the entirety of the earth and everything outside of it is actually yeah. alive. It's very, um, I mean, this is this is going to sound dismissive, but it's very Pocahontas, right? It's very, like, colors of the wind, everything, you know, uh, everything is a person, everything is connected, everything is uh, has its own say in the universe and in, in its part. Yeah, I mean, I'm somebody who... Obviously, I I don't agree with anything that's religious for the most part when it comes to like deities or when it comes to or or yeah. godliness. And it's also hard to uh, for myself to believe in anything that's mystical or spiritual sounding in that way. But I think that when you start to reclaim what spirituality can mean, or when you start to look for maybe different language you can actually see that rocks do have different types of perspectives or that they do have a different type of life and that they actually exist. And part of existing is being, and that's yeah. living. Yeah. It's, I think that's, that's a central part of the difficulty is that when you try to articulate something like that, it's tempting to say something like, Oh, the rock has a soul, but the word soul is, is laden with all of this baggage, right? This theological baggage of what soul means and what spirit means, you know? And yeah, that's a good point that like the rock can be special and living and its own entity and its own existence without having this literal kind of metaphysical existence that, you know, 
has to be tied to some 2000 year old book or something. Like it doesn't have to be folded into some theological model to be uh, something worthy of our respect or worthy of our um, desire to connect to it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's, it's sort of a trick when you say, how can we look at things outside of a human perspective as a human? And is that possible? Uh, Maybe not technically, but the most or the best that we could do is say, well, if I can't necessarily understand it, then the least I can do is yeah. validate it and actually listen. A lot of what people are doing right now, and we can see that in a lot of human-to-human conflict, is invalidation and telling somebody else that you know what they identify as is wrong. And so, I mean, maybe it's, and I'm not trying to trivialize anything, but maybe I could say, well, I shouldn't be invalidating that waterfall. And not that anybody necessarily is, but if we start to actually validate the life or the being of the environment around us, maybe we'll start. Yeah. yeah, I like that idea. Cause there's this, there's this, uh, compulsion we have to prioritize, right. Experiences or perspectives or life, um, and say that this life is more worthy of our time or of our interest than this other life, or this idea is more worthy of our time, or this identity is more worthy of our time. But it sounds like you're saying for the same reasons that we should reject that in our own like identity politics among humans, we should reject it in our human exceptionalism. You know, we don't need to say that for the same reasons that we don't need to say straight people are, are more normal than, than gay people. We can also say humans are not more normal than ants or trees or waterfalls, right? Like there's nothing about the universe that needs to cater to us more than it needs to cater to anything else. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, why are we trying to create yeah. a hierarchy <laughs> when it comes to importance? I mean, it, I also found this struggle within myself when I have this, I would even call it environmental anxiety, where like I struggle driving on the freeway and looking out towards the city and just seeing all mm. this stuff. And like how long it's going to take to, to deteriorate. Mess, huh? And yeah, I mean, I don't like it. Some people do. I'd rather look out at a canyon or something, you know. But I had this issue where I would just constantly feel aggravated by seeing just garbage or seeing people reusing bottles. And even reusable bottles last yeah. a long time. I carry my own around. And of course, plastic is the, the demon right now. Um, and you know, we can even see corporations using right. business tactics to ban things like straws as if those like were the biggest yeah. problem. <laughs> exactly. But I had a conversation with one of my professors and I said, I have this problem. What do I do when I just feel irritated by all this stuff? And it's just piling up constantly and it's causing disturbances around the world and for other animals, not just for people. And the way that he framed it was, well, plastic had to come from somewhere and it did come from the environment. And so we can look at it as everything that we use did have a starting place. We can still look at it as something to be grateful for. Now, of course, we want to use these things less. We want to be more responsible when it comes to the things that we do or like our carbon footprint. At the same time, I think that becoming more responsible is going to come from being more grateful for what we already yeah. have. And that's going to help alleviate some of the, I don't know, some of the conspicuous consumption 
that we do or that we participate in. Uh, Conspicuous consumption is consuming for social status. For the sake of consuming or for the sake of appearing to be someone who can consume, right? Yeah, I like that idea a lot that that the cure or at least the beginning of the cure is something to do with gratefulness or with mindfulness or with this sense of instead of being insatiable, let's be perpetually grateful. And that might be the first step to a type of lifestyle or a type of interacting with the world that isn't as destructive or isn't as um, perpetually problematic or, or harmful. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to, to uh, get a single use item and throw it away and feel grateful yeah. for it. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, it's a big problem and I'm not here to try and tell everybody to live differently, but I guess some of what the point is, is, this is the type of purpose or community that I've found for myself outside of religion. And I think that a lot of people do care about the environment and a lot of Mormons or Christians or any other type of faith see some type of environmentalism, whether it's dominion or stewardship and a lot of atheists or, you know, anybody who's ex Mormon can, can actually rally behind being more grateful. Yeah. I think that's a thing that most people should be able to agree on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find a lot of solidarity in that. I find a lot of purpose, uh, and just recognizing that there's different perspectives outside of my own human one. And uh, at, at the same time, you can see that, um, I guess the way that I would put it, or actually it's more of a shout out. There's the most beautiful book, and it's called Braiding Sweetgrass. It's by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And it's one of the, the best books I've ever read. It's all about indigenous wisdom, about plants, but also she teaches botany. And so she knows a lot of the science behind it as well. And she just blends it and tells these stories that really show that a spiritual side to gratitude as well as a scientific one can really coexist. They can coexist. And I find that it's just the most beautiful, you know, book. I can't praise cool. it enough. Uh, and I would really encourage, I'd really encourage anybody who is struggling with a faith crisis or is wanting to find something else other than just non religion to, to identify as is it's, <laughs> I couldn't speak more highly of it. It's something that's really brought, a lot of peace for myself. And I think that a lot of other people could get behind beautiful, it too. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Russell, for uh, talking with me today and, and, and uh, recommending that book and other, other resources. We'll include links to those in the description. Um, is there anything else you wanted to plug or any like final words of any thoughts that you were dying to get out that maybe we didn't get to that you wanted to mention before we close the podcast? Not necessarily. I mean, I just really, I mean, it's a struggle to see people hurting when they're trying to leave something like Mormonism or something that has provided them with so much identity. And so I never want to come off across as somebody who is bashing what they're trying to leave. But I think that it's also important to be critical of it, but also not so critical as to, uh, you know, take the humanity away out of the conversation and also, you know, try and regress into something more negative. So it's, it's hard to find a balance between uh, being kind, but also being 
like critical for the right reasons. And I think that, I don't know, the, there's got to be a little, bit, a little bit of a conversation there. And I hope that people can find yeah, a middle absolutely. ground. I appreciate your insights and, and, um, and my efforts to, uh, to find that middle ground over the years. And hopefully our listeners will appreciate as well some of the things we've, we've covered today. Um, and listeners, thank you so much for listening. Uh, and let us know if you have any questions, if you um, need any more resources on any of these topics or subtopics, feel free to email us with any thoughts or feedback. And thanks so much for listening again. And we'll see you on the other side. Let's go in the garden. Find something waiting right there where you left it lying upside down. On the Other Side was a production of the Open Stories Foundation between July 19th and October 25th of 2018. Intro and outro theme for this podcast is Everything Stays, a Rebecca Sugar cover by Bly Wallentine. You can find more of Bly's music at blywallentine.com. Everything stays.